I wish, uh, I wish the word great cut it. You know what I'm saying? Like I was just struck when, as we were singing back there. It's awesome that we don't have vocabulary that can get it done. You see what I'm saying? Like it's great that when we sing a line, how great thou art, then sings my soul. I love that line because I'm just sitting back there thinking, like there is no vocabulary word that we even have at our access, despite being a lover of Webster's like I am, that can even begin to articulate the goodness and greatness of God. And for that reason, it's great to gather here tonight. Amen. Uh, um, me, like you, I like beautiful things. Um, my wife, when I see her, it is like the absolute picture of beauty and gorgeousness. You know what I mean? Uh, when I see my little daughter, Avery, it's just like the epitome of beauty. Um, a few other things, for me, a freshly painted football field. By the way, I'm not putting that on the same level as my wife, obviously. Don't, like, she's in the massage minis tonight, so don't go back to her. Also, a, a nice, like, fresh, green, newly wrapped two-liter of Mountain Dew is just like one of the most beautiful things ever. By the way, I've been sober now since January 1st uh, of Mountain Dew. So uh, three months now, just a couple days ago, off Mountain Dew. It's pretty incredible, right? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Some of you are excited. Some of you think I'm a freak. It's okay. Either, either way, I'm good with that. Beautiful things we're attracted to. Um, it's amazing, though, when the Scripture is beautiful. And it's amazing that tonight we get to look at one of the most classic parables ever told by Jesus. One of the most taught. One of the most spoken about. And most often when the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son is taught, this is the way it's taught. It's the Word of God opens and the teacher grabs the lost son or the prodigal son and pulls it out of its context and makes it a story of its own. But for those of you who were here last week, we know that this parable, the parable of the lost son and the prodigal son, fits within, my friends, a beautiful context. It doesn't sit by itself. It's not one day Jesus randomly said, and today the parable of the lost son, let's go. No, He's still answering the Pharisees and the teachers of the law's criticism that Jesus eats and welcomes sinners. So all of a sudden tonight, we have the opportunity to study one of the most classic parables ever and understand its context. That there have been two other parables. First, the parable of a lost sheep, where we see the shepherd going after this lost sheep, one out of a hundred, putting it on his shoulders and walking it back to the flock. We saw the next parable, that one out of ten, this coin falls out of a probable headdress, and this woman, not Jesus in this case, a female, right? But this woman goes after this coin, sweeps, and the word we loved last week was carefully, finds the coin, and she puts it back. And in both parables, this phenomenal image of celebration. And so, the parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son, fits within this context. And so, my friends, I want to invite each of you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. There should have been a piece of paper that was placed on your, um, on your chair with a few pictures. We're going to be using that tonight. Uh, so get that out. I would get out a pen as well. That would be very, very helpful. Are you guys there? Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Let's do this, huh? Let's go. Let's pray that the Word of God will speak to us tonight, convict, and ultimately draw us closer to Himself. Verse 11. 
Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. Like we did last week, like all of a sudden, when I see two sons, and I put this passage in context, I'm instantly drawn to the number two. Why? Because we saw a sheep, one out of a hundred. We saw a coin, one out of ten. And now we see what? A person, one out of two. I told you guys last week that the hundred sheep would be significant, and here's why. Because Jesus, in His teaching of these parables, is clearly escalating, like a cool escalator that doesn't get your foot caught. You know what I mean? It's clearly going up from one to a hundred, to one out of ten, to one out of two. Can we also agree that there's a little bit of escalation in the worth of the individuals who the story is about? First, a what? A sheep. Nothing against sheep, right? I mean, we're not, I'm not here to judge a sheep, you know what I mean? Nothing against a sheep, but it's clearly less worth a son or an individual. Then next we saw a coin, which was a denarii, which represented a day's wage, and now a person. So if we were listening to Jesus, here's what we'd be thinking. We'd be thinking the stories are like expanding, and they're getting more heart-wrenching, and they're getting more, they're escalating. And, and, and we're even going to see that this story is longer than the first two. And there's a whole other piece to this. So there was a man who had two sons. Listen to this. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, in ancient Jewish practice, it was pretty much an un, uh, unheard of a thing that, that the, the father would do this. Now, it wasn't necessarily illegal, but it was different. The oldest son, even like we saw in Genesis, do you guys remember this? The oldest son would get half of the estate, or in this case, let's say two-thirds. And the younger son awarded one-third of the estate. But this younger son comes to his dad before he's dead, which would be the general time when someone extends their will to you. And he asks for, like, his portion of it. I, I was putting this in my context. My father, I mean, if you know him, he's, um, he's been good with his resources. He lives on a lake, has a nice boat, a jet ski, even pretty sweet. How many guys like jet skis? Yeah, all right, great, three of us, awesome. You can tell we live by water, right? And, and, and it'd be like me going to my father, Dad, um, I know you're 50 and in perfect health, but could I score that boat now? Like, that'd be awesome, you know? If you want to, throw on the jet ski, write out a check, Mark Sigma, no problem. You know what I mean? Let's do this. I mean, to my dad, I would be communicating, I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, then I could just score this and it would be a lot easier. But instead, since you're still alive... I'm going to have the audacity to ask for it. Now, isn't it interesting that in Jesus' story, and remember, this is a story, a parable. And like we uh, defined last week, a parable has this like literal uh, meaning and then it has this extra figurative meaning that the dad gives it to him, right? And again, in this story, like we, we can't assume why, maybe to teach him a lesson or maybe to walk him through this. We, we, don't, we don't know this. But all we know is that the younger son asks for his portion of the estate and the father gives it to him. Verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So he sells the land, scores the cash, and then lives with the principle that the grass is greener on the other side, right? Which makes us think all of Green Acres. Have you guys ever lived with this principle? Some of you are burdened with the yoke of the grass is greener. You're never content here and now. Let's be honest. You always think it's always better over here. It's always better here. And so you never are fully present, ever, wherever you're at. 
Because you know, wherever you go, that it's always better somewhere else. And that's the son's issue here. That he's heard, maybe, of this long, far away, off distant country that has beautiful women and that has awesome financial resources and that has fun and games and all these things. And so he says, yeah, yeah, like I want me some of that about what it means for the father. For him, it's I deserve this estate now. And so he lives with this premise that everything that is given to him, he's deserving of it. He doesn't see it as grace and mercy. He sees it as something that is deserved. Friends, that is why our relationships are plagued with selfishness. That's why for many of us, we can never progress to humility because we're constantly in the here and now thinking that the grass is greener on the other side and thinking that we deserve it. When you live with this principle, do you understand the implications? Do you understand that when you live with this principle, you're living under the assumption that that, that what the enemy says about sin is true? And what the enemy says about sin is that sin promises freedom. And when you believe this, what you're applying is sin, in this case the son squandering all that he has, promises freedom. And you begin to believe that the freedom that the enemy says that sin can provide is true. And so you begin to believe that you deserve it, thinking that it will provide for you freedom. Some of you in here tonight, right here, right now, are living so selfishly and arrogantly, thinking that everything that you have is deserved to you. Friends, you guys know the attitude that I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's that type of mentality, right? And, and, and like we would say about other people, I despise sometimes people who are constantly acting like they deserve everything, and then we follow complete suit, doing the exact same thing, my friends. This son believes that he's deserved an estate, he receives it, and he squanders it. Verse 14. After he had spent everything, right? Uh, it's a tax refund time. Right? And uh, I know for many of us, uh, if, if not all of us, like we see the dollar bills, y'all, you know? It's like, all right, I got the tax refund. You know, for some of you college students, your refund's like 10 bucks, you know what I mean? But still, you're excited, you know? Well, a $10 check, like we're hooking up ginghams tonight, you know what I mean? It's gonna be, we're gonna get some fried chicken and $7.95, trust me, I know, you know what I mean? Great French dressing there at ginghams, little, little pitch for them. But whenever we see those dollar bills or something that comes in extra, it's so easy for us just to already have it spent in our mind. You know what I mean? It's like, well, I have this to take care of and this to take care of. Anytime, like, all of a sudden we have a pile of money, whether it's uh, for a college student, a low amount, or for uh, others of us who scored, you know, three, four, five thousand dollars, whatever it is, it's already spent in our mind. And that's exactly what this son does. He stores a large sum of cash. And obviously, instead of being a good steward, he's just like, I'm going to fill every craving possible. And every dollar possible. That's why, uh, how many, some of you guys have watched Oprah before. Um, repent. Just kidding. Not really though, right? Uh, no, but seriously. And, and th- there was this interesting, um, this, this interesting show that I watched one time. Uh, they gave a homeless individual $100,000. And they came back six months later. And this homeless guy that they had followed along for six months was in debt, like $20,000. Like he didn't get a job. He didn't do anything resourceful. It was all of a sudden, and I'm, obviously this isn't across the board because many people would be very responsible with it, but he takes this 100000 and it's just like dollar signs, and he goes 
crazy. Friends, it's not being a good steward. And this son hasn't been a good steward because there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. We're a little bit experiencing this today. Can anyone say recession? You know what I mean? Like things are going down the tubes a little bit. Houses aren't selling. Gas is like $15 a half gallon. You know what I mean? We're literally going to have to start riding BMXs again, right? I can't wait. Jamon actually has a sweet BMX, right? He'd be good to go. But, but he, all of a sudden, a famine comes away. And again, this is just a story that Jesus is sharing, but he's escalating what's happened. So this son begins to recognize that he's in need. He squandered everything. A famine comes in the land, something he wasn't expecting. And now, all of a sudden, he has nothing. This is, uh, many of you, how, how you, how you deal with your resources. There's no planning. There's no expectation of maybe one day, like, my, my, my basement's going to flood, okay? And I'm going to need extra resources. Maybe one day I'll be in a little bit of a car wreck. Like, we plan so poorly with our resources, don't we? Like, spend it all, and if we get to that point, then we'll have the infamous credit card. And that will, like, cover our backs. And then we're back in debt where we found ourselves before. So a famine comes in this land, unexpected. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. Any uh, pig feeder herders here? What's a pig herder called? Pigger? Is that what they call? Get me a pigger. You know what I'm saying? Right? You have a pig? You had one. Okay, awesome. So one person, good. Well, pigs, as you are well aware of, is not the meat of choice in Jewish country. Okay? Pig is, is like... The opposite of the meat is, you know what I mean? It's like the other nasty meat, you know? I mean, that's, that was their, I mean, it just is not. And the Greek phrasing here of, um, he went and hired himself out. The better phrasing is, he connected himself. And if you look at the Greek words and break them down, the literal Greek word is glued. So he goes out, and this guy isn't that willing to give this guy a job in the story. In fact, this guy has to, like, propel himself to even get this job, which is the most detestable thing that a Jew could do, thinking, feeding pigs. So understand this in Jesus' story, speaking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He said this son goes from having a great inheritance, living in a household where probably the father was wealthy. He goes, he squanders everything. There's a famine that comes in the land, and now he's feeding pigs which is the bottom of the totem pole in Jewish country and Jewish land. The story starts to beat. It starts to have a rhythm when verse 16 begins. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Have some of you been there before? Wild living squandering every bit, ounce gratitude that you ever had. And you find yourself in the pit with the pigs, recognizing your need and yearning that you could even eat a carob pod that the pigs eat. Next slide. I, I sum up this piece of the text with, I reap what I sow. This son is coming with the realization that what he reaps, he will sow. There's scripture 
after Scripture after Scripture that speak very clearly and poignantly to the fact that our sin has repercussions. But what about forgiveness? And what about grace? Completely legitimate. But that doesn't negate the fact that your sins here and now on this earth have repercussions. For some of you tonight, right now, right here, are reaping what you've sown. Um, you've been in a relationship that's completely struggling sexually. And right here, right now, tonight, you're reaping what you're sowing. There's some of you that, in the example that I already gave, have financially been a wretched steward. And tonight, you enter to this room worried about the dollar bill sign. Because can we just all agree, my marriage, for instance, my wife and I have had more intense discussion about dollar bills than anything else. And so if you become a bad steward about that, do you understand the tension that it can create in your marriage, in your relationships, relationship with your parents? Some of you tonight, because of bad financial decisions, are reaping what you're sowing. It doesn't negate the fact that you're forgiven by the blood of a cross and the grace of Jesus Christ, but it also means that, it, that you won't necessarily reap what you're sowing. Sin has repercussions. Uh, some of you in here have been involved in jobs that have just completely been about deceit. And tonight, here and now, when you walked in, you're burdened and reaping what you're sowing. This son is reaping, squandering his wealth, and he's reaping what he's sowing. Verse 17 says this, When he came, and the story begins to turn, when he came to his senses, which is an ancient Jewish and Aramaic phrase for talking about repentance, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So all of a sudden, this guy wakes up and he comes to his senses and if at this point in the story we leave the practical and get to the figurative, he repents. Now let me show you what this looks like. Uh, you guys will remember Peter, right? Uh, a great, uh, a great disciple ends up being crucified upside down because of the cross. Just a, a great man of God. When Jesus called him back in the early parts of Luke, and he told he told Peter to drop his nets into the water, and the fish, remember, filled up the nets. Do you guys remember what Peter's response was? He said, get away from me, Lord. I am a sinner. I am completely unworthy. Jesus called him. Jesus pursued him on a beach. Not randomly. He wasn't like, like straddling along. Straddling is the wrong word. Walking along. You know, that would have been weird. Straddling the beach. I don't even know how you do that. I guess he's God. It's possible. But he's walking along. He's walking along. He, and he, and he doesn't just all of a sudden see Peter. He was supposed to be on that lake that day. Peter was supposed to be there. And Jesus calls him. And when Jesus calls and pursues and saves who he's going to save, my friends, you must understand that there is an instantaneous sense of unworthiness that is coupled by that calling. It's repentance. It's the shepherd putting the sheep on his shoulders. It's the woman finding the coin by hearing the ding of carefully sweeping the floor. When He calls us and draws us 
by His grace to repent, there is an instantaneous sense of unworthiness. And that's what the son's feeling. He comes to his senses. By God's grace and power and work, he repents. And he comes to this place where he's like, you know what? I have been an idiot. You know what I mean? How many of you have ever been there, right? If you just come to that point one day and you're just like, like you write it literally in your journal. I am a moron, you know? And he comes to his senses and he thinks to himself, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to tell him, just hire me. Because as a hired son or as a hired person in your household, I, I, like, I'm still, there, there's still some sense of worth there. But it's still just words at this point, isn't it? Friends, some of you guys have been there. Uh, you're sitting at your table or your desk and you're reading and you come to this great realization. You have this great sense about something. And at that point, like it's just a thought. It's just words. But this son and Jesus' story to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law goes to the next step. So, he got up. And what does your text say? He got up and what? He went to the Father. Okay, are you guys with me here? Uh, we talk about over and over and over that repentance is stopping and turning. Here's what the Son has done. Give me more of the world. Give me more pleasure. Feed my lust. Give me everything that I've ever wanted. The grass is greener. On the other side, all of a sudden, by God's power, He comes to His senses. He repents. He turns. And He goes where? To the Father. He got up and He goes. I believe there's a song that talks about this very phrase. Some of you guys will know the song, Come Ye Sinners. We're going to sing it later. I will arise and what? Go to Jesus. I will get up. By His mercy and power, I will turn from my cravings and I will go to the Father. So He gets up. Listen to this. I love this picture. And while He was still a long way off, His Father saw Him and was filled with compassion for Him. He ran to His Son, threw His arms around Him, and kissed Him. Now, uh, like last week, if uh, you saw this uh, verse on my whiteboard, it was like circle, red arrow, chaos. You know what I mean? There's so much happening here. First of all, for an elderly Jewish man, really any elderly man, to run. Like, it's a little bit weird, right? You don't often see, like, 55, 60, 65. We don't know exactly how he is. Dudes, like, running around. Especially in the Jewish culture, this is a little bit unheard of. Because oftentimes he would wear a long garment. So picture, like, a man, the dad of this big estate, picking up his, you know, his robe or whatever he's wearing and literally just, like, chucking and ducking down this robe. Can you picture that? I mean, this is like the ultimate sense of, I want to get to my son. And, and that goes without saying that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it was legal that for a wayward son who was in a community, sometimes when they would come back, that they would stone them to death. So it's possible, and again, we don't know this because it's not in the story, it's possible that this dad is picking up his clothes and running, which is just a funny image, because he wants to show the community, because I'm sure word is spread, like, hey, do you know about so-and-so? Uh, with the family so-and-so down the street with all those, you know, so-and-sos. Uh, he's gone completely wayward and so-and-so, just for one more time in there. You know what I mean? He's gone wayward. And so you can imagine that if, if there was a moment to stone this kid, that the dad's like, no, I have to get to him first. Because word had gotten out, people may have been sketchy about who he was. And the father's wrapping around of his son and the kiss showed the community what? I approve of my son. And I want him back. And he's here. And in verse 21, the son 
said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, which is a way of saying God, and against you, I am no longer, what's the word? Worthy to be called your son. Next slide. In the third piece of your piece of paper, the son goes from I deserve it to I reap what I sow, and all of a sudden, because of God's work of repentance in his life, he goes to I don't deserve it. And it's beautiful, isn't it? The I don't deserve it piece is beautiful, isn't it? It's the I have nothing. I've been eating with pigs. I've squandered all I have. I don't have anything left. Friends, do you get, do you get this picture, please, saints? People who don't know Jesus in this room, can you get this picture for a second? I've lost all that I have. I have nothing left. But what I do have is I have a Father who's running to meet me. Who's, by His power, placing worth in me. And that can only come from an attitude of the heart of I don't deserve it. For those of you in here who are struggling thinking that you're owed something, you'll never get to this place. You'll never get to the place where daily you're waking up and you can't wait to put your knees on the ground and say, Oh God, I am so unworthy to even breathe today, but by Your grace and by Your mercy, I can wake up and say, God, show me today how I could be Your servant. That would change our relationships, wouldn't it? All, all, all of our interactions, they'd be different. The ways that we would look at each other and the ways that we talk about each other, if we each saw ourselves as undeserving, do you guys understand what would happen? Could there be any bigger thing that could happen in this room? than a whole group of people believing that they don't deserve anything. Could you imagine the humility? It's kind of hard for us, isn't it? <laughs> Let's be honest. We're so prideful, so arrogant, so about us, to imagine a church community where every single individual was waking up every day and saying, I don't deserve it. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the beauty? To cut him off, verse 22, but the father said to his servants, I love that. It's like the son can't even finish his speech. And, and the speech has been rehearsed. Uh, many of you kids, uh, uh, you did something wretchedly horrible. For me, I was a paper boy when I was a kid. Not a good idea. Me on a bike, throwing things. Bad, okay? Naughty, all right? I mean, I can't tell you the number of windows and little children and everything that I hit. I mean, it was horrible, right? But there was this one time where, and, I, and I'm not making this story up. I really wish I was, Okay? There was this elderly man who every day would kind of meet me outside. And we kind of had this game where I would, I would throw the paper to him, and he enjoyed it, right? It was kind of like a game, and he would catch it, and he'd go back inside. Well, this one particular day, it was a little bit rainy, so my aim was a little bit off, right? He walks out, and he wasn't the fastest of all individuals, so I kind of would toss it to him. I accidentally flung it a little hard, and it literally plastered this guy in the face, falls down. I mean, it was, just, it was horrible, right? He calls my parents because he thinks I did it on purpose even though we had this friendship. I can still remember coming home that day in my mind thinking of the rehearsed speech I was going to tell my parents. Okay, so first line is I'm an idiot. Second line, you know, and you're like speaking it. You've been there before, haven't you? You're like, you're writing it on the next part. You're writing it on the palm of your hand so you don't forget it. Uh, Mom and Dad, um, well, you see this, you know, and you're, you're like going through this. Picture that as the son. He came up with this great speech. Look, look, Dad, I'm unworthy to be called your son, which we can all agree is a money line. Isn't that a money line? 
I mean, I wish I would have thought of that when I was a kid. Mom and Dad, I am unworthy to be called your son, you know? Oh, amen, you know? I'm mean, like giving you a big hug. It's a money line, you know? It's like it can't be any more money. But, but does the Father even, even acknowledge that the Son has spoken? I just got, whoa, that was weird right there. I say, I just got, and I was going to say the chills, the power's going out, right? Like the Father doesn't care. No word can mean anything at this point. But the fact that the Son has turned and has come back figuratively by God's power, like that's all the Dad needs. Are you guys with me? Like He doesn't need any word. Because what speaks volumes is that the Son is back on His driveway. Uh, we, we go without approach a lot with God too, right? We think that words mean a lot sometimes. And then somehow, even though our actions are completely different, that our words will hold some stock with God. But remember I told you, I, knew, I mean, I know I haven't kept up with that covenant at all. So, so look at this. The dad says, quit, bring the best robe, which the best robe in the house was probably the father's robe. So he says, go get my robe. Listen, and look at this. And put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, which was the insignia family ring. That would, have, that would have said to any Jew, authority, and friends, get this, it would have said sonship. In one moment, when the dad says, give him a ring, the dad is saying, that's my son. And then he says, put sandals on him, which no servant would ever wear sandals. And so the son, in his great rehearsed speech, I said, I'm unworthy to be your, to be even be your son. Just hire me as your servant. And the dad says, no, no, no. Give him some sandals showing that he's above the servants. Bring the fatted calf and kill it, which many of us would get excited about in ancient Jewish times. They wouldn't eat meat a lot of times outside of feasts and festivals. So this is a little bit different for us. It would be like, sweet. You know what I mean? Like every night we'd be like, cook the cow. Let's do this. You know what I mean? Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. And what's the word? Celebrate. And now you see all the similarities of all three parables. Something was lost. Something gets found. And the finding causes what? Celebration. Here is where this parable takes a little bit of a tasty turn. Here is where the examples of the sheep and the coin stop. And this parable continue. Verse 24. For this son of mine was what? Was dead and is what? Alive. You notice that in Jesus' rhetoric of telling the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the first two parables, he never mentioned the word dead and he never mentioned the word alive. Now, all of a sudden, this son was dead and now is alive. He is lost and He is found. So they began to celebrate. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field and the music builds and the older son comes back into the story introduced. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. And I, I love that they put dancing in here. Like it's one, can we agree? It's one thing to have a feast. It's a whole other thing to turn it into a dance party. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's one thing to kill the fatted calf. It's another thing to break down a little bit. I mean, this, this shows in Jesus' story the sense of joy 
Like, this wasn't just some natural, normal celebration. This was, hey, you know what? I'm an elderly father, and I'm going to keep my robe up a little bit, and we're going to shake a tail feather. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this is that type of party. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, verse 26. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on instead of going to the father and asking. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. I sum up this whole piece, this whole passage with this next slide. He doesn't deserve it, but I'll give anyway. If every day we understood the grace of God to be like the Father, undeserving, squandering all of the inheritance, and then coming back and still placing somehow the signet ring on the finger symbolizing sonship and in Scripture a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Do you guys understand for just a moment better the grace of God? You don't deserve it. Not a single one of you. I know some of you are really good people. And I put that in quotation marks. You do a lot of good things. You serve in a lot of great ways. You sing worship songs perfectly on tune. I mean, you nail it, you know. Randy Jackson, I mean, you hit it, you know. Some of you uh, are, you love the hurting, the lost, the confused. Some of you are always inviting the widows over to your home. Despite all of that stuff, you guys understand you don't deserve it. You don't. Not a one of you. Not a one of you and not a one of your good deeds deserves the grace of Jesus. But through Him is placed worth. So some of you right here, right now, tonight, need to be reminded of the fact that you don't deserve it, but because of His faithfulness and because of His righteousness and because of His great plan He gives it anyway. Verse 28. The older brother who represents in this story the Pharisees and the teachers of the law became angry and refused to go in. This, this just kills me here. Because it's not like the older brother in the story has lost his inheritance. It's the classic... Uh, uh, me, me, is Brianne in here tonight or is she in Matthias Mini? Uh, Bri and I, we grew up close together. And um, this is the classic... Bree has done something wrong, which she often did, by the way. Lived crazy girl growing up, man. I know it was oftentimes me. Like, I, I was the brother always cutting her hair. You know what I mean? Like, she came out looking like, you know, this crazy uh, Sigourney Weaver ball. I mean, it was ridiculous, you know? And, and I would tell on Bree, trying to blame it on Bree. And then when my parents came in and gave grace, which I should be celebrating, instead it made me angry because I was hoping that they would have gotten in trouble. You guys, you guys get this thing. Jesus is showing the Pharisees that what you should be celebrating, you're getting angry at because you're wishing that these sinners that are coming to repentance, I'm providing grace for, and it makes you angry. Does that not seem preposterous? But does that not seem, all of a sudden you sit back, and if you're a Pharisee or a teacher of the law, or us, you're like, hold on a second. Jesus is saying that anger over grace is ridiculous. It's like the brother getting upset because the daughter or the sister didn't get in trouble. And even when they should have. Could we all agree? When the sun came back, like it should have been like 50, 50 lashings. It's the difference of, look at this, 
the dad running out and the dad doing this. And we all know that difference, don't we? Come on. You know the difference. Whenever your parents stand like this anywhere, ever, you know, I mean, it's death, you know. They got the hand on the heels. And like, you know, my mom has kind of like the lunge in. And you're like, whoa, this is going to get crazy. You know what I mean? But it's the difference between the hand on the hips and the running after. And in this case, the older son is angry. So his father went out and what's the word? Pleaded with him. If you were taking notes on a sheet of paper like we did last week, this one particular verse, you should have got out like eight highlighters and highlighted every piece of it. Why? Because the older son is angry and refusing to come in. And what does the father do? What does he do? What does he do? He goes out. Just when you and I start to think because the father in this case represents God and the individual outside, the older son represents the Pharisees, just when you and I are about ready to give our God's going to kick the Pharisees RC Cola, high five, you know what I mean? Just when we get to that place, just when we get to that place, all of a sudden, Jesus switches the entire story up, goes outside and pleads with the individual that represents the Pharisees. What does that say to the Pharisees in the teaching law? The period of grace is not over. The period of grace is not over. You, as depraved and nasty and law, taking advantage of as you are, Pharisee, you, by my power, still have a chance. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. Because that ultimately shows the grace and power and goodness of a great God. Verse 29. But he answered his father, Look, all of these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Highlight crazy. The father, or the the older son, believes that what? That work and obedience is going to grant him some relationship with the father. He's like, hold on a second. This doesn't make sense. The son who went out and gave away everything he had to his lust and his cravings comes back and we're killing the fatty calf and doing, you know, dancing, I'm dressing the dragon doing the hula and I, all of a sudden, have been working and slaving for years. What does he say? Obeying all of your orders. I, like, I, I haven't earned anything. I don't deserve it, but he gives anyway. Right? No good work can ever come to the Father apart from Jesus Christ. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Verse 30. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. This may be an assumption or just an addition to the story to talk about the cravings of the world. You kill the fatted calf for him. Verse 31, My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. And this is where the church is missing it. It's the word had. Circle it. Square it, draw a pentagon around it. I don't care. This word had is so significant. The Father said we had to celebrate. That, that tells me there wasn't a choice. Why? Because when God moves, when God's power is revealed, when people come to Him, the natural inclination is we have to celebrate. Because to do anything else would be minimizing the cross. We had to celebrate. But here we sit, right? Oftentimes in our church, 
in our church, in this case, our little blue cheap seats, you know, not the pews. We're just like, you know, we're sitting here critiquing every song, critiquing every word that's said, looking at the way the lights are forming, looking at the person across the way to make sure they're dressed appropriately, making sure that when I talk to people afterwards that they're saying the appropriate Christianese terminology to make us all feel better about ourselves, and missing Jesus, and missing celebration. Why? Because we show up thinking that we deserve something. I deserve to sit in this church and to be fed, period. I deserve to sit in this church and to sing good songs. If we don't sing good songs tonight, I hate everybody. I deserve to sit in here and then be put in the best small group ever. And if I don't have the best small group ever, with all the cool people, I'm just going to go off on everybody. I'm not going to be happy. I'm going to complain every day. And we're living with this understanding that we deserve it. We deserve to sit in here and have a great church service. We deserve to have the coolest friends and the best job and the most money and the easiest life. My friends, can I tell you something about the great gospel of Jesus? Is nowhere is any of that promised. If you're going to try to find that in the Word of God, all I can say is good luck with that. Many do try and many uh, twist the Word to portray some type of, like we've talked about before, some type of prosperity gospel. If you've signed up for Jesus, if He's grabbed your heart and allowed you to repent, my friends, what you're signing up for is a life of suffering. And so many say, so when does it get good? I'll tell you when it gets good, when it gets good, when we're sitting in the presence of a holy God, bowing before His throne, saying, I am unworthy to be called your son. That is when it gets good. And many of us will have great relationships. Many of us will sit in chairs, walk out of church services blessed and encouraged. But friends, that is an example of grace, not something we deserve. He says, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I sum up this last piece by these three words. What about me? That's ultimately the cry of the older son. What about me? I mean, are you kidding me? I've been working hard, doing all these things. What about me? Some of you deeply connect with that, with that little anecdote there, don't you? What about me? What about me? At the end of the day, the question that each, of, each and every one of us has to answer, this would be the point in a typical teaching of the prodigal son where we, we would kind of close up shop. But the story's not done. Why? Because we haven't talked about holistically what Jesus is communicating to who? To the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The one who this parable was directed to. They made criticism of Jesus saying, you eat and you dine with sinners. And ultimately, at the end of this teaching, what is the message of the prodigal son? The message is those sinners who you ostracize are like the lost son who went out, squandered everything, came back, and I provided grace despite them not deserving it. And then I celebrated, just like you should, you angry, arrogant, prideful Pharisees. That is each of these parables. Through Christ and His grace, the dead can be made alive. The lost can be found. And it's all resting on His great shoulders, my friends. That is the message of the prodigal son. Nothing else, nothing more. It's the glory and goodness and faithfulness of a God who's provided grace 
despite our lack of deserving it. And so for those of you in here still trying to work at it, still trying to try it, still trying to think about the question, well, what about me? This person has this and this person has that. Let me share the truth of the story with you is it's only through Him and it's only by Him and it's only for Him. Tonight, the response is for each of us to really discern which of these five statements tonight we're most connecting with. For some of you tonight, it's, I deserve it. Your heart is there. You're living with the reality that you deserve something. For some of you, it's you're right amidst the season where you're reaping what you're sowing. For some of you tonight, that's where you connect. For others of you, it's this idea of I don't deserve it. Tonight, you just you came in here and you're humbled. For another group of people, it's he doesn't uh, he doesn't deserve it, but I'm going to give it anyway. Tonight, you just need to be reminded of the grace of God. And finally, some of you are just completely struggling with what about me? I'm a backside of that piece of paper that I have. There's passages of scripture that go with each one of these. In reverse order, on the back, if your statement was, I, I deserve it, on the far right is those passages and on down the line. Tonight, for each of us, as we respond to a beautiful story often taken out of context, as we respond to that beautiful story, let's spend a few moments tonight just repenting, crying out, reading the Word of God, and allowing the Spirit to do a work.